Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, as a British-born subject, I am, of course, in mourning. Yeah, the news from London obviously rocks me back on my heels a bit these past few days. Yes, I am deeply saddened by the loss of Claressa Shields versus Savannah Marshall, and indeed Michaela Mayer versus Alicia Baumgartner, which, based on the social media sniping between the two, is shaping up to be kind of the equal of the main event. Um, but the fight, as we know, has been postponed until October 15th, which is actually going to be a pretty packed day. Uh, that's also the day when Deontay Wilder makes his return against Robert Hellenius, uh, with Caleb Plant and Anthony Durrell as a co-main, when George Cambosis Jr. seeks his revenge against Devin Haney. So... A lot going on that day now, uh, but at least neither of us have anything else going on that day, right? Uh, you're, you're doing that uh, thing again that you like to do, Kieran, where, where you know something the audience does not. Uh, so so they may have guessed by now. Uh, I do kind of have other stuff going on that day. Uh, October 15th is the date of my son's bar mitzvah. And, um, you know, I, I got to say, we booked this date like a year ago. Boxing's promoters and matchmakers have known about it. Right. And this intentional counter-programming, man, this is the crap that's killing boxing. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll watch all the fights in due time that weekend. I'll, I'll make it work. Um, but uh, while I have this other stuff going on, you know, uh, at least you don't have anything going on that day, right? No, absolutely nothing. Um, except for the uh, the time I have to spend at, uh, in, in, oh, right, in Reykjavik. Yes, I'll actually, <laughs> actually be in Iceland that week through that weekend so that's gonna be really interesting because uh, i have no idea how or if i'll be able to watch any of the fights that you also won't be watching because of the bar mitzvah so um if you guys listening out there are looking for you know what i just need one day to not listen to the podcast maybe October 17th will be the day to skip. I don't know. I'm not sure how we're going to do this. <laughs> I think uh, it'll be just fine. We'll put out a podcast. It will talk about all of these fights. We will have seen none of these fights, but we, <laughs> that has never really stopped us before. Our, our ability to BS through things we know nothing about uh, exactly. is unparalleled in the podcasting space. Exactly. I, I would actually even wager that the quality of analysis of the fights will not suffer even slightly. It may improve <laughs> because we haven't seen them. <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would uh, argue if I could, but I can't. There's a, an, a, a, indeed a strong possibility this will be our best work yet. Yeah, well, there you go. Anyway, all right. So it's actually been a little bit of a quiet week this past week on the boxing front. Um, and that's, that's partly because of the postponement of that card in London. Uh, but there is a huge fight to look forward to next week as Gennady Golovkin attempts to secure his first official win against Canelo Alvarez at the third time of asking. Uh, we also have some more heavyweight title fight posturing to discuss. Uh, we'll be speaking to the man who will be in the corner of Caleb Plant for that bout with Anthony Durrell that we mentioned. That's our buddy Stephen Breadman Edwards. Uh, but first, to Bally's in Atlantic City and a showbox triple header in which each fight saw an early knockdown. Um, in two of them, that knockdown proved decisive on the scorecards, but that wasn't the case in the opener, where after... Nelson Figueroa Boca Chica won the first round. Royman Villa completely took over. He knocked down Boca Chica and had him in all kinds of trouble in the second and might have stopped him had referee Harvey Dock not stopped the action no fewer than three times, including at least once that I thought was very poorly timed to replace Boca Chica's mouthpiece. Uh, Boca Chica lost the point for losing the mouthpiece so often and ended up becoming dislodged twice more 
as Villa simply outworked and outfought him to take a unanimous decision by scores of 79-72 twice and 78-73. Welterweight Boca Chica suffers his first career loss to drop to 17-1-1 with 11 knockouts. Villa, a Venezuelan who was making his US debut, is now 25-1 with 24 KOs. So, Eric, is your love affair with Boca Chica now officially over? Uh, but how much of this result was due to any mistakes that Boca Chica might have made? And how much just to Villa being that little bit better? So on the love affair front, I, I think I said this the first time Boca Chica didn't look so hot, uh, but I'll say it again. Any love I had for him was purely about the quality of the name. Uh, I, I never <laughs> thought he was a future champ or anything, but now I think it's quite obvious. Um, and I don't mean to write someone off after one defeat. Fighters can learn and improve, but sometimes you just kind of know. I, I'd be pretty surprised if Boca Chica adds his name to that lengthy list of showbox fighters who became world mm. champions. He just doesn't appear to have that kind of upside. Uh, but the story here is and should be Roy Villa, who fit that description of the dangerous South American fighter that Brian Campbell was talking about. He might have a little of that Ricardo Torres in him. Mm. Boca Chica boxed as well as he possibly could in round one. He was jabbing beautifully, but Villa was basically waiting, measuring, downloading information. And even though Villa lost the round, he was coming on by the end of it, starting to put on pressure and work the body. And he took over in round two and never looked back. Now, you see a guy with 24 knockouts and 24 wins, obviously he's a puncher, but then he ends up winning by decision for the first time, and you might think, oh, okay, he's not the puncher that that KO rate suggested. I don't think that's the case here. Yeah, it went the eight-round distance, but Villa is a legit puncher. Boca Chica was just game, and, and, and he wouldn't give in, and he wasn't afraid to spit out his mouthpiece a few times to get through <laughs> trouble. Uh, you're right that Harvey Doc bought him too much time, I don't see why they need to rinse the mouthpiece off. I get that it's preferable to do that, but you've signed up to take punches to the head. Right. I think you can stand a little dirt in your mouth <laughs> to right. avoid interrupting the flow of the fight. Um, if a guy's spitting it out while in some trouble in the fight, you know, call time, pick it up, shove it back in. It's a five-second break and the fight continues. That's that's what I say. But at least Doc did take a point on the third infraction. Um but anyway, that, that was a big knockdown in the second. Via's power is for real. The third round was really violent, and then the pace slowed a bit. Boca Chica knew he needed a knockout in the eighth and ended up eating a couple of bombs from Via as he <laughs> went for it. Um, there's nothing fluky about any part of this result. You know, uh, Via is a welterweight with some upside who I'd like to see step up and see how he does against a fringe contender, whereas... Boca Chica is a second-rate prospect who takes a step back. And this is part of what Showbox is for, to tell us who has it and who doesn't. I think this fight provided clear answers about where both guys stand for now. All right, so that was the opening fight, where once one fighter knocked the other down, it mostly all went in one direction. Not so with the 10-round featherweight co-main. For the first four rounds, Frenzy Fortunato of the Dominican Republic largely kept Bernard Angelo Torres at bay with his long jab, and in the fourth, he dropped the shorter Filipino with a counter right hand as Torres came forward. Thereafter, though, Torres began to close the gap and work inside. Some of the rounds were close. Some of them Torres was winning clearly. He wasn't necessarily doing damage, but he was back in the fight, entering round 10. And he really came out throwing in the 10th and caught Fortunato with a pair of good left hands. But Fortunato dug deep, landed a nice combination of his own late in the round. 
and held on for a split decision. Uh, Fortunato won 97-92 and 95-94 on two cards, while Torres got the nod 95-94 on the third card. Fortunato is now 14-1 with 10 stoppages, while Torres drops to 16-1 with seven knockouts. Uh, Kieran, what did you think of the scorecards and of the fight, and would you like to see either man again? I think two of the scorecards were just right. I had it 95-94 Fortunato and have absolutely no problem with 95-94 Torres. 97-92 feels far too wide as that gives Torres just two rounds when you factor in the knockdown. And that seems unfair. I thought he clearly won at least three. But mm. um, I get it also, right? Because uh, Torres struggled to really impose himself on Fortunato on the, or on the contest. Whereas Fortunato gave the impression, at least until those last couple of rounds, of being at least somewhat comfortable um, he rarely had to change up his game plan. Um, he just kept working behind that jab, keeping Torres at bay. And honestly, I actually would have quite liked to see Fortunato sort of attempt to fight a little bit outside of his comfort zone, to be honest. He wasn't so far ahead that he was okay cruising at any point, even though he apparently thought he was. Um, and it was an important outing for him on a big stage. You'd, you'd hope he'd want to make an impression rather than do just enough. Um, I thought the Torres, in contrast, really did try uh, and put maximum effort in, but he just struggled to get past that long reach of Fortunato. And I would have liked to have seen him try to work his way in more behind a jab. Yeah, he was the shorter man, but you could still deploy a jab effectively and really needed to show a lot more head movement while he was doing that. Um, Also, of course, not waiting four rounds and and until he'd been knocked down to get going would have helped. But, you know, this was a fight in which I thought two styles somewhat negated each other. And I don't mean that that was a boring fight to watch because it wasn't, but it did sort of prevent either man from really showing his best stuff, I I think. Um, But I don't think either one really takes a step back as a consequence. This is just one of those fights that someone has to just about win and someone just loses. It's a learning process. I think both will probably figure some stuff out as a result of this and move forward. Um, I don't know that either of these guys will be a true world beater, but but they'll learn from it. They'll keep going. They look like they're both very good, solid pros. And I'd be more than happy to see him again on Showbox, both of them, actually. Yeah, and I'll just note on the scoring, I actually ended up with Torres on top by a point, but certainly zero complaints about the result. My only complaint is the same as yours, that 97-92 was a little wide for my liking. Yeah. Oh, and I should make a note, I want to hug whoever managed to silence the guy who spent the first six or so rounds screaming, (laughs) ow, every time Fortunato landed a punch. He was doing it by the end when Torres landed a punch too sometimes. Imagine paying for a ringside seat only to have that guy behind you. My goodness. If, if it turns out that somebody ringside went to extreme measures and let's say <laughs> cut cut out his tongue, is, is that still okay? You, you still want to hug that In person? In the circumstances, it was nails on a chalkboard stuff, yeah. wasn't it? it yeah, was... it really was. <laughs> um, but if the co-main was something of a clash of styles, I had nothing really on the main event, uh, which saw Joseph Adorno box smartly and compactly take an early lead against Hugo Alberto Roldan. Through three or four rounds, he seemed to be in cruise control, but Roldan kept at it with his extremely awkward herky-jerky style, began reeling him in uh, until he just ran out of time, falling short by unanimous but very close decision, 95-94 across the board. The difference was the second round, which Roldan was probably winning until Adorno put him down. Um, Eric, you picked Adorno to win by knockout. I picked Roldan by split decision. I'm assuming you felt pretty confident early on and maybe a fair bit less so by the end. So I guess it wasn't quite that extreme for me in that I didn't necessarily think Adorno was ever on the verge Mm -hmm. of earning the stoppage. Um, And at the end, actually, I was 
reasonably confident the decision was going to go Adorno's way, even though there were several close rounds. I don't know why I had that confidence, but it just sort of felt like it was going to be, they were going to raise his hand. But yeah, that knockdown completely decided the fight because I thought Rodin was pretty clearly winning the second round. So you get a three point swing from a single punch and it wasn't even the cleanest knockdown. It was a bit of a cuff, although the previous shot landed clean and may have stunned Roldan. Mm. But, you know, I, I talked about how via Boca Chica provided answers about both guys. This fight, not so much. I definitely yeah. still have questions about both of them, especially Adorno. This was an uneven performance, which is nothing new for Adorno. Uh, his counters were so sharp, so on point in the earlier rounds. He showed just the right amount of aggression. And then, I don't know if he wasn't in A-plus shape after taking the fight on slightly short notice, but he faded in the second half. Round seven, he totally stopped being aggressive at all, was just circling with his hands down. I started wondering if he'd hurt a hand or something. Mm. That's how disappointing he was in round seven, eight, and nine before stepping it back up a bit in round 10. And Roldan, boy, he looked really raw at times, uh, really reaching with his punches, leaving himself vulnerable to those counters. But he dug in. He fought through a bad cut. Um, By the end of the fight, both guys looked a mess with their swollen eyes. It was an uneven performance from both fighters, and Roldan, he came to boxing late, which makes him someone who, at age 29, could still be developing. But both of these fighters feel like question marks to me right now. Neither proves superiority over the other. The knockdown determined the winner, and, uh, you know, I'll take it in our picks competition. Uh, Uh I get one point for a mediocre prediction of Adorno (laughs) KO8. You get zero points for a nearly perfect prediction of Roldan by split decision. (laughs) I now lead 67-64, and, hey, you need a little luck in life sometimes. I'll take Mm -hmm. it. It, It's much better in life to be lucky than good. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay, so that was a nice, entertaining little card on Friday to get us through what turned out to be a light boxing weekend. The weekend ahead features a much bigger event. Saturday at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin meet for the third time, four years after Canelo prevailed narrowly in their rematch, which itself came a year after they fought to a controversial draw in their first meeting. A lot has happened since they last faced each other. Canelo has outpointed Daniel Jacobs and Callum Smith and knocked out Rocky Fielding, Sergey Kovalev, Avni Yildirim, Billy Joe Saunders, and Caleb Plant. But in his most recent outing, he lost at light heavyweight to Dmitry Bivol. Golovkin hasn't lost since facing Canelo, but he hasn't always looked great. He rolled over Steve Rolls, scored a controversial win over Sergei Derevyanchenko, and TKO'd Camille Zermata and Ryota Murata. Although the Murata win came only after he took a lot of clean, hard shots for the first few rounds. Kieran, Golovkin is now 40. He's been much less active than Canelo, and he's had fewer impressive wins. Do you think that this time Canelo separates himself from his rival? Or has the Bivol fight changed your thinking? So, I absolutely think Canelo will win. Um... Although I don't know that it will be quite the blowout that some think, and perhaps I also thought for a while. I think the real issue for me is I just suspect, as I've thought about it, that Golovkin and Canelo just are two fighters who will always give each other hell. And that's why their previous two fights were so insanely close. And, well, this might be closer than some think. Um, Look, Golovkin won't be able to box with power from the outside the way Bivol did against Canelo, but that's okay. That's not his style anyway. He'll want to jab his way in close and fight in close to medium range, and that's what Canelo will want too. Um, it's a little hard to ex- to assess exactly 
what Golovkin still has. Um, as those four fights you mentioned since the Canelo rematch, they've given us kind of mixed signals. Yeah, he beat Rolls, but Rolls didn't belong in the ring with him. He was probably fortunate to get the decision against Derevianchenko, but Derevianchenko was a tough out for everyone at that stage. The stoppage of Zaramada seemed pretty impressive, but then Jaime Munguia went out and did the same, or even better. Um, he looked great in the second half of his fight with Murata, but horrible, absolutely horrible in the first part of it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, those the doubts about Golovkin four years on from the rematch, look, he's 40 years old now, as he said. Um, and even though you can make the argument without too much trouble, actually, that he should have been 2-0 against Canelo, he, he couldn't quite get over the line back then. So what, does, what can he do now? Um, you know, Golovkin's just not what he was in, say, 2016. I mean, which of whoever this is. And, um, and much of that, I think, comes down to the fact his footwork just isn't quite what it was. Mm. For all the talk about his power and punch selection and general skills, and everything about Pete Golovkin was set up by his footwork. He, he cut off the ring with seemingly minimal movement. He had his opponents just where he wanted him, them at just the distance he liked. He could commit to his punches. But in recent years, I think his punches have lost some of their snap at least early on in a contest until he breaks a guy down. And I think that's at least partly because he has increased difficulty in keeping his opponents just where he wants them. It, it makes him that shade more tentative and forces him to reach just a little bit more and makes him just that little bit less dangerous. But I do also want to say, I think there probably are questions about Canelo. And to some extent, these were raised a little bit by the Bivol loss. Um, he hasn't had to fight three minutes of every round since Daniel Jacobs. And even that was more of a chess match than a true fight. As you mentioned, he wiped out Fielding and Neil Durham. He just beat up Callum Smith. And he just took his time against Saunders and Plant and Kovalev, content to fall behind on points and rely on his heavy punches and his and, and his accuracy to just break him down until he could break through. Um, you know, he, he's always been selective in his punches, but and he was able to dig deep and fight against Golovkin. But does he remember how to do that after four years? You know what I mean? When he hasn't really had to dig deep. And we assume that the fight being at 68 is to his advantage. And maybe it is for his strength, but maybe it isn't for his stamina. So I think there are legitimate question marks. But all of that said, Canelo should win this. And, and I think that ultimately, as much as we always talk about both guys' offense, the key element will be his defense. His, his upper body movement will negate the impact of a lot of Golovkin's punches, whereas Golovkin's going to leave his chin hanging out there to get absolutely shellacked at times. Um, I think we might be a bit surprised and find that Golovkin's reasonably competitive for the first half of the fight. But ultimately, I think he's just going to take too many clean punches and Canelo is actually probably going to answer some of those questions and prove that he is able to still fight for, if not three minutes of every round, then enough of every round. Um, to, to get it done, uh, I actually kind of think there was a period where I thought that Canelo would stop Golovkin, but I think a Golovkin will probably hang on there till the end. It'll be a decision win, but this time it won't be controversial. I, I see a sort of 116, 112, maybe even 117, 111 kind of a win for Canelo this time around. Right? What about you? So I think I see this as a slightly less competitive fight okay. than, than you do. The Bevel result is interesting. Um, as plenty of people have observed, Canelo losing that makes this upcoming Triple G fight seem more competitive than it probably would have if Canelo was still almost everybody's pound for pound number one and, and still undefeated since 2013 and all that. Mm. For a lot of people, one loss that maybe tells us nothing about the Canelo Triple G matchup makes this more promotable. Um, or then again, maybe Canelo not having the pound for pound claim anymore makes this less promotable, uh, mm. even if it seems more competitive. Regardless, 
I am not finding myself swayed at all by what happened against Bivol. Um, I'd been saying the last couple of years that I think if this third fight gets signed, Canelo knocks Golovkin out. When I saw Golovkin Murata, I mean, yeah. he was so slow that night. His hands were moving slowly and his defensive reflexes had slowed to where he was getting hit flush. I came out of that tripling down on Canelo mm. knocks this poor old guy out. And the Bivol fight has had only the slightest of effects on that opinion. I still believe that most likely Canelo is too fast and sharp and skilled for this relatively plodding version of Golovkin. And I still think Canelo forcing a stoppage is the most likely outcome. Mm. I don't have... It's interesting the questions that you raise about super middleweight for Golovkin. I, I, or sorry, for uh, Canelo, rather. I hadn't really thought about the fact that maybe his conditioning and stamina aren't as good at 168, but I, I definitely think this is his preferred weight right now, whereas Golovkin, yeah. we know, could absolutely still make middleweight. And there's just been this steady decline for Triple yeah. G since you can really goes back to, you know, his absolute peak, I'd say, ended after like 2015. And since then, it's been, you know, he gets hit more than expected against yeah. Kell Brook. And he ekes out a close one over Danny Jacobs. The two Canelo fights come and it's like, whatever you thought of the decisions, clearly Golovkin looked like a guy who would have had better success a couple of years earlier. Yeah. And Canelo waited him out just the right length exactly. of time. Yeah. Then he barely beats Derevchenko. Then the Murata fight year by year. He just keeps losing two miles per hour off his fastball. Yeah. Um, he's still a puncher. He's still dangerous. I'm not totally counting him out here, but I do make Canelo a comfortable favorite, and I think there's a good chance we see Triple G's sad Lewis against Marciano type moment once this mm -hmm. gets past the middle rounds. Um, but, but I'm still looking forward to it. Should be a fun event, a real big fight feel. Also have fighter of the year candidate Bam Rodriguez on the undercard. I'm looking forward to it, and... I imagine I'll feel those butterflies when the bell is about to ring. There's, yeah. there's just something about two superstars on this level with this history trying to knock each other's heads off. Yeah. Okay, time for the news. And out of respect for Her Majesty the Queen, we have canceled our news undercard. Um, in all seriousness, there was hardly any news worth talking about this week. And that's why we've canceled our news undercard. Uh, they're really just two news items. And appropriately, they come from across the pond. One we've already somewhat addressed, the postponement of the Shields Marshall and Meyer Baumgartner card. The other item is our news main event, and it concerns the latest maneuverings surrounding the heavyweight championship. Tyson Fury has now apparently decided that he is definitely, absolutely not retired after all, and in fact can't wait to fight again. Uh, Alexander Usyk, who had a long camp preparing for his win over Anthony Joshua and presumably would like to check up on things back home in Ukraine, has said he doesn't want to fight again until early in 2023, which prompted Fury to post a video message on Instagram in which he said, before I announce an opponent, I need to do this just in case. Anthony Joshua, I know you just lost a fight to Usyk, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to fight me for the WBC Heavyweight Championship of the World and the Lineal Championship in the next few months. You're coming off a 12-round fight, so you're match fit, you're ready, and I'm giving you a few months' notice. If you're interested, I'll send you the date over and we can rumble. A battle of Britain for the WBC Heavyweight Championship of the World. Let me know if you're interested. If not, I will select another opponent. Thank you very much, and good night. Uh, Joshua's promoter, Eddie Hearn, replied that his side would be interested and suggested December 17th as a date. 
Fury proposed a 60-40 split in his favor. Hearn said, fine, and if we win, you get a rematch. But now Fury has said December 17th is unacceptable, and the acceptable dates are November 26th or December 3rd. Kieran, does it sound to you like this is a fight that might actually get made? And if you're Joshua, coming off an emotionally devastating loss, is it a fight you should take? I feel almost dirty at this point responding every week to Tyson Fury's latest utterances. (laughs) I mean, it's one thing craving constant attention, but I kind of imagine even Floyd Mayweather thinking, damn, dude, you're coming across a little too thirsty at this <laughs> right. point. I don't know how seriously to take any of this or how seriously everyone involved is taking it. Um, you talked about the dates there and the fact that Joshua and Hearn are offering December 17th and Fury is countering with, no, that's absolutely unacceptable. It has to be no later than December 3rd or no right. deal. That kind of suggests there's, there's a lot of posturing here. Um, but whether it's posturing with a view to gaining an early sort of psychological advantage or posturing because nobody's really committed to making it happen, I don't know. Um, I somewhat get the argument that Fury wants the fight earlier so he can then turn around and fight Usyk as early in the new year as possible. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It still doesn't need to be a real stumbling block there. Um, and and your other question, like, if it is for real, should AJ take it? I guess that depends on what the goal is with him at this point. Honestly, to me, it would feel following the Usyk loss and particularly the way he reacted to it as if his team were cashing him out, honestly, just looking to get him as much money as he possibly can it yeah. can earn because there's always a chance that if he took an interim bout or two instead, he'd get knocked off there and then the tens of millions or however much would be on offer for Fury would disappear forever. So, but against that, it's just so difficult to see how Joshua could possibly win this fight. Um, I think Fury would probably wreck him mentally in the build-up before he even got in the ring. And and I just see Fury absolutely taking him apart in the fight itself. Um, I almost wonder if his team is playing a bit of a high-stakes bluff here, backing Joshua, showing that they believe in him, going through the motions of trying to make it, but hoping that it actually falls apart. Um, but... That said, the only way for Anthony Joshua to be certain of not beating Tyson Fury is to not fight Tyson Fury. <laughs> and fighters, as we've discussed before, are a breed apart. And, and I don't imagine that AJ himself is thinking, man, I need to build up my confidence, take a couple easy fights first. He'll see this as an opportunity to write his career immediately, to make a massive statement, book his spot in the Hall of Fame, uh, and shut up a man I suspect he doesn't like too much, as well as to make an insane amount of money. Um And if his team is bluffing, that's a dangerous game to play against a guy who changes his mind from moment to moment. Um, Honestly, if I had to make a guess right now, I would say that it's going to seem at some point that the talks are absolutely stalemated and it won't happen. And then Tyson Fury will wake up the next morning and completely change his mind, call everyone's bluff, and it'll be on. Um, Of course, some of the obstacles are out of the fighters' control. There are different promoters and broadcasters and all that usual stuff that has to get dealt with but if fury and joshua both wake up and say one morning and say they both want it it'll happen i guess interesting um i'm thinking less about whether i have any opinions on if it will or won't happen and more about just whether i want to see it and yeah i'm 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 really torn on this because sure it's still a massive event 
but the timing just feels all wrong. Yeah. It has a bit of that Mayweather Judah ickiness. Uh, mm, you know, yes. you're taking on the guy who just lost his big fight. Yeah. Why do we bother naming winners and losers if the loser gets the next <laughs> opportunity? Right. Um, although there are different circumstances in that Usyk said he's unavailable for the rest of the year and Fury wants to fight this year. And so his options are to take a tune-up that wouldn't mean much to anyone with the plan to face Usyk early in 2023 or to take the biggest fight he can possibly make in the interim. So I get why he'd call out Joshua and I'm not opposed to it happening, but it just feels a tad icky and it has certainly never felt less meaningful if Tyson Fury beats Anthony Joshua than it would at this very moment. Uh, But one good thing about this is that it inspired this week's tweet of the week. Um, I know I slash we give this award to Dick Hercules at Ratcatcher MPLS (laughs) fairly often, but it feels like it's been a little while. Um, So uh, what the hell? He is the king of boxing Twitter humor, and I thought he nailed it with this tweet on Tuesday. You know how picking out shit to watch on Netflix is more fun than actually watching it? I feel like that's Tyson Fury's whole approach to scheduling fights. Uh, Great call. Fury is just scrolling and scrolling and pausing and saying, oh, maybe we should watch that. And then he, you know, he mentally bookmarks that movie for a second. Then he keeps scrolling. And by the end, he scrolled through the entire library and he can't even remember. "Ah, You know, I I know there were a couple things I said we should watch, but now I forget what they were. And so he starts over. Um, I don't know when he's going to fight next or against whom. But he clearly enjoys the process Yes, of throwing ideas out there and getting yep. suckers like us talking about his options. Yeah. Yep. Just being able to see everybody dance to <laughs> every, every random thought he just throws out there. It must be hilarious to him. I'm sure he absolutely <laughs> loves it. And I got to say also, Dick Hercules is like the Canelo Alvarez of tweeting in that he actually doesn't tweet constantly. Right. He just but when he tweets, it lands. Uh huh. Gotta yeah. give it to him. Yeah, you know, but, he, he he picks his punches, but he makes sure he makes sure that they score. Yes, to use my second baseball metaphor after talking about Golovkin losing two miles an hour off his fastball, Dick Hercules easily has the highest batting average in boxing Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, talking of high batting averages, let's bring in this week's guest. He's an old friend of the podcast, and he's a regular guest, and we're always happy to have him join us. He always has smart stuff to say. Stephen Breadman Edwards, welcome back to the podcast, buddy. How you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us once again. Um, so I was listening to our friend and colleague Brian Custer's podcast this past week, and his guest was Caleb Plant. And Caleb mentioned that you're now working with him, which I was unaware of before hearing that interview. What can you tell us about that relationship and, and how that came together? Um, we've always had a good relationship because uh, he's been fighting with PBC since 2012, and I had Julian Williams with PBC for 2012. It wasn't even called PBC back then, but, uh, you know, Al Heyman. Right. And so we just had a good relationship, just fighting on the same cards and knowing each other and seeing each other and things like that. And, you know, it was no reason for him and Julian not to be cool because they don't fight at the same weight. So then we just formed a relationship, and then um, – uh, when him and his trainer separated, you know, he contacted me and told me that he's trying out a few trainers, interviewing some guys. It was some esteemed trainers, so I didn't know I was going to get the job. So he came and worked out with me a few times, and um, here we are. Okay. Uh, and so, of course, the last time we saw Caleb in the ring was his his defeat against Canelo. Um, 
what has he had to say about that? I assume you guys have have, have talked about it a, a bit. Where is he at mentally coming off a loss? Um, you know what? You never know until a guy gets in the ring. You know, that's how I am with losses. Obviously, I got experience dealing with guys with losses, uh, devastating losses. And uh, you can come back from them, but you don't know until you get in the ring. Uh, he told me why he thought he lost the fight. You know, I don't want to divulge it, but, you know, everybody has a reason on why they lost. Um, it's my job to compartmentalize it and move on and become a better fighter over. It's not the end of the world. You know, this is the only ever and only sport where they make a loss seem like it's the end of the world, but it's really not. You know, if you're a real fighter, you'll learn from it. You'll get over it and you'll just look at it as that's just that day. That's how that's how I get over. Like that was just that day. He had a good day on that particular day, and you move on. So we'll see. Uh, I got confidence in him, but at the same time, I still got to see him perform. You know, it's his first fight after the loss, so we got to see what he got. Right. Talking about that next fight, uh, it's going to be against Anthony Durrell on Fox Pay Per View on October fifteenth. Um, Durrell's had a bit of a fitful career, you know, especially lately. He's had some good wins, but he's also had some disappointments. The loss to Badu Jack and Benavidez, the draw with Kyron Davis. What are you expecting from him? What are the kind of things that Caleb is going to need to be wary of? I expect Darrell to be mean. He's a good puncher, got good fundamentals, good right hand, good balance. Uh, he, he he views himself as a puncher. He's not a lights out puncher, but he can punch. I expect him to try to hurt Caleb. He he said he hates him, said he doesn't like him. They have personal issues. You know, they have a lot of personal issues going on. You know, it's between them. I don't really want to get into that. But they got some personal issues. And uh, I expect a real hard fight. Darrell is one of those guys who, if you look at him really close, he doesn't win by a lot, but he doesn't lose by a lot either. You just look at his fights against the top guys. He never gets blown out. He may not, you know, pitch a Pernell Whitaker kind of performance. Or, you know, where he shuts guys out, you know, besides the Truex fight, I believe, is the only fight he was really dominant at at the top level. But nobody ever dominates him. Even David Benavidez, before that cut, Darrell was uh, outboxing him. You know, so he's a, he's, a, he's a very good fighter. I got a lot of respect for him. And, um, you know, people assume that, you know, Caleb's going to outbox him a big favor. I don't assume anything. This is a real tough fight. And I know it's a tough fight. So um, I'm just, you know, I'm getting ready, but it ain't, it ain't, it ain't going to be no easy fight, you know, coming off a loss and the guy coming at you like that with that much disdain in his heart for you, Cave's going to have to deal with him and put him in his place. Well, speaking of uh, guys who find themselves in close fights, uh, next week, Gennady Golovkin and Canelo Alvarez meet for the third time, and uh, their first two fights couldn't have been any closer than they were. Um, Golovkin could easily be 2-0 and instead of 0-1-1. and uh, This time around, the general sense among most is that Canelo is a reasonably clear favorite. Do you agree with that, or do you think these two will always give each other a, a close fight? And, and did the Bivol fight change your opinion at all on what to expect here? Um, Canelo's coming off a loss, too, so you never know. But, you know, he didn't get stopped. You know, maybe, you know, Canelo's a tough guy, so he probably, you know, um, he probably looked at that loss as, like, it's just a day in the park. You know, guy's a little big. I didn't have my best day. I think Canelo kind of has Golovkin's number, to be honest. Even in the fight that I thought Golovkin won the first fight, I felt like, 
Canelo fought a better fight. I just thought that he just didn't have his stamina to work three minutes of the round, and Golovkin kind of like out-hustled them with a jab. But if you look at the way they fight each other, Golovkin can never really like dominate Canelo. He can never really like hit him with the variety of punches that he hit everybody else with. Golovkin hits guys to the body, you know, right hand, left hand. Only thing he can really hit Canelo with is a jab. He never really like puts a bad beating on him. Uh, and, and and like I said, I thought Golovkin won the first fight, but I was watching the fight, and I'm like, damn, he don't really open up on Canelo like that. He don't go to his body like that. It's a reason why Canelo's counterpunching kind of like it it blunts Golovkin's offense. Hmm. Uh, and I, I was watching Golovkin in camp for the first Canelo fight. Karan Davis and Julian Wayne was in his camp. A lot of people don't know that, so. I flew out there to watch the sparring, and he was like, his attack was layered. It was right hand to the body, uppercuts, hooks, everything. But when he get in the ring with Canelo, all he really do is throw, is try to throw, hit, hit him with a jab. He can't hit him with nothing else. So there's a reason when you fighting a guy and you really can't land big punches against a guy. So, um, you know, he's 40. Uh, they're testing, you know, so we got to presume that he's clean. And I just feel like that, you know, those two fights took a lot out of him, and I just can't see him going through that again because Canelo know how to fight him now. You know, Canelo knows that he don't have to run from him. He knows he gets off faster. You know, so it's two guys with great chins, big punches, but one guy's more twitchy and more reflexive than the other one, has better reaction time. So I don't – I just think that it's a tough fight for a 40-year-old fighter. Yeah. Uh, I think he probably, I mean, if this is real competitive and he takes Canelo to the wire, that would be, man, it would be a hell of an accomplishment right now, to right. be honest with you. You know, because I, I don't expect it. So with that in mind, are there any uh, betting odds that you, that you like on this fight? Have you have you made any uh, bets? Or, or? I, no, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I think Canelo is going to win. Probably stop him. Probably like a mercy stoppage. Mm-hmm. You know, I think because I just think that, like, either Golovkin's going to have to box off his back foot and move away from him or kind of walk into the meat carver. It's it's funny that you mentioned Canelo stoppage because that's the specific – those are the odds that I looked up that I was most interested in myself. And it seems at most books that's plus 150 to plus 175, but I found it one place at plus 195. So I, I assume that, that sounds like a bet that you would be interested in making then. Yeah, I probably do like Canelo by stoppage. I'm not crazy about it because Golovkin, he got underrated heart. That second fight, he was losing, in my opinion. And his push that he made, I think after the eighth or ninth round, it was savage, man. It was like a savage push that he made. Right. So he he you know he ain't no easy guy to to stop, man, because he gets hurt, he's getting winded. But man, he has a lot of determination. Golovkin has a whole lot of determination, so it ain't going to be easy. He's a prideful man. He got a maybe an all-time great chin, so I'm not like – I wouldn't bet my mortgage that Canelo's going to stop him. <laughs> but if you're asking me, I would probably favor a stoppage because Canelo just – he just understands how to fight him. He understands that even though he's dealing with a big puncher, if you got that kind of a speed advantage, don't run from him. Stay right there, and you got to punish him, man. He go to Golovkin's body too, man. You know what I mean? And that's, you know, guys don't have the heart to fight punchers like that. But when you do, it's like a truck trying to run you over and you flatten the tires. He flattens 
guys' tires that try to run them over. Canelo is actually, you know, it's better to fight him if you're kind of moving away from him or keeping him at long range, but coming towards him, he has a great punch variety and he goes to your body in combination. So that ain't easy to deal with. So I just I just don't know if a 40-year-old man could deal with that right now, especially the way Canelo's been looking at 168. But, you know, he's coming off. Let's see if he has some slippage. You know, he has a lot of career fights over 60, so he could be slipping also. Let's, you know, we got to just see how the fight works. But I, I think Canelo will probably win by stoppage, late stoppage. Um, so this weekend, we were expecting to see Clarissa Shields against Savannah Marshall in London, but the fight was postponed in response to the death of the Queen. Uh, and obviously, look, postponements and cancellations are a fact of life in boxing. But I'm curious if you were in that position with a fighter where they peaked, they made way, they were ready to go. And then the day beforehand, they were told, no, it's going to be in five weeks. How do you handle that? What do you do with them? Do you let them relax for a couple of weeks and then build them up again? Do you try to keep them at a peak? You know what, man? That is like, that is the million dollar question. Everybody <laughs> has a different way of doing it. But when I first saw it, I'll tell you a quick story. When Bernard Hopkins fought Felix Trinidad, I bought tickets for the fight. That fight was originally scheduled for September 15th. A lot of people don't remember that, but that's the date of the fight. So the 9-11 attacks happened, and they keep everybody in New York. And then the fight was was postponed to September 29th. That's how we got that date. So I always thought that the postponement favored Hopkins. And the reason why I thought it was because he was the more disciplined fighter who was used to staying closer to the weight. And even though Trinidad was smaller, he was the guy that was known to blow up in weight. So when he fought, I was like, damn, man, Hopkins has an advantage. So... For this fight, I look and see all these girls, they hire all of these people, you know, just cut this, because everybody's fighting a weight division that they probably not should be, supposed to be fighting at, you know, uh, maybe except Clarissa because she goes up and down in weight, so she probably she probably is a, not too big of a 60-pounder, but like uh, like Michaela Mayer, like talk about how big she is to the weight, she looks really tall. So if you're doing tricky stuff just to make the weight, you can't hold that weight like that because it's a process as far as getting the fluids out of your body. So I, when I saw that it was postponed to October 15th, I'm like, man, that's a fair postponement, even though it sucks for the fans, because what it does is it allows the girls who have to go through the extra stuff to make the weight for their bodies to kind of reboot. Me personally, if I was a trainer, I would let one girl have like a real, real, like live sparring session like today because that's the day she was supposed to peek out and fight just to get it out of her system because like mm. dogs kind of got to eat you're training that hard you're mad you want to eat a little something you don't you know right right now they're, they they got nasty attitudes they ready to go so i probably would have let my girls uh have a live sparring session not without headgear because you don't want to get cut but something live and then um go back home you gotta you gotta give a couple of days for travel. That's a far flight. Relax for a couple of days and then get back to work. And then you just do a three week camp and then taper for four weeks and then you'd be right in the fight week again. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're supposed to do anyway. Three weeks of hard training, then you taper for the fourth week. So I think they will be fine. That's what I personally would do if I had the resources to do it. Like if I had somebody they could spar or whatever. Because it's tough. It's not easy. But they're giving them enough time. If it was like they postponed it to next week or the week after, I would bet on whoever was the against whoever was the bigger person that had to go through making weight. 
because their body wouldn't get a chance to reboot. Because what happens is you drink a certain amount of water, and then you drink a little bit less water, then a little bit less water, then you could probably got to get in the tub and, and, and suck all the water out your body and do all of that stuff. So the day before that, they was in the middle of that process already. You understand what I'm saying? And then now all of that stuff just gets canceled. So whoever struggled to make the weight or whoever was the biggest girl, I will probably bet against them. But now the field is going to be even because now they have enough time to let their bodies reboot and go through all, you know, go through the process again. But I definitely would get some really, really loud sparring, some super loud sparring. I, and so from what you're saying, it sounds like the, the psychology for the fighters got to be difficult too, right? Because they're ready, like you said, they're ready to go. And yeah, now they've like, kind of also got to psychologically build themselves up. Three of the girls are from the United States. So I would let them come home and just chill out for like three or four days and do mm-hmm. nothing before you get back to the gym, just to let your body come down because you're building, you're building, you're building, you're building. And then you're getting to that point of ready to, you know, explode. And then now it's like a letdown. Listen, in the gym, we're let down if a, if a sparring partner cancels. So imagine how it feels to get let down with your career high payday with all of the publicity. This fight was promoted really well. So it kind of, you know, you know, they got to be really mentally strong to get past this. You know, but I think, you know, I think they'll be okay. They got a month. Like October 15th is more than a month, five weeks. So I really think that they got enough time. I think that when they did the postponement, they were thinking about, you know, the girls and the weight and everything. And I think that even though it's really far away, in terms of the people that bought flights and things like that out there, I really, really honestly think that it was fair to to both to all parties involved to take so long so they can they can really regather themselves and and kind of let their bodies down a little bit and then build it back up. Interesting. All right. An- another question along the lines of how you would handle a, a particular situation. Um, Tyson Fury is out here pushing for a fight with Anthony Joshua in December, and, and Joshua's team seems at least somewhat receptive. If you were advising or training Joshua, would you want him taking that fight right now off the Usyk losses? Um, You know what? I'm going to answer this as honest as I can, man. With the kind of money he's making, at a certain point, you just got to say the hell with it. You know, ideally, it's probably, you know, not the fight to take with with his confidence, maybe a little shaky after Usyk. But he, like, you're talking about the biggest fight in British boxing history. Both of those guys may make $75, $100 million. Like, I mean, you know, it is a business. You're not going to say no to that. So I don't want to get up here and act like I would tell that guy to say no because he just lost. He wasn't just knocked out cold. He just lost by decision. So, like, if I'm part of that team, I can't say no to that. You know what I mean? As a trainer, advisor, whatever capacity I'm, I'm working, I can't, I couldn't say no to that kind of fight. Just, I mean, I'm just being honest. Like, it's just too much money involved. Way too much money involved. I also think that these guys wait too long to fight after losses. I, I don't want to point anybody out, but I've watched guys' careers just go in the tank because they lose a fight, and then they don't fight for two, three years after they lose. So Joshua's getting right back in there. You know, um, he didn't get stopped. He's a man, so go ahead and fight, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, 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 th- I just think that everybody in this era is just it's too much posturing. It's too much waiting. It's too much, let me see what this guy has. Just go ahead and fight, man. You know, you, somebody going to pay you $75, $100 million to fight just because you lost a fight a couple of months ago. Who cares? Go fight. Ray Leonard lost to Duran in June, and he fought him again in November, right? Just right. go fight, you know, so – 
I don't blame him for if he if he want to go ahead and fight. He got to do what he got to do at this point. You know, who, who knows how much longer his career has. You know, after the blow up, after the fight, who knows what he's going through. He might as well go and make his money. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they do call it prize fighting. <laughs> prize fighting for a reason. Yeah. He's the biggest draw in boxing. You know, so, I mean, you got to fight. See, that's why we love having you, Brad. You're old school. We appreciate that. So, um, hey, look, look, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We know you got your son's football game to get to, so we won't hold you from that any any longer. And as always, man, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks a lot, Brad. Breadman never disappoints, um, except maybe a little bit that time he had COVID and didn't tell us. But even then, he was interesting, just just lower yes. energy. But uh, he rocks. Thanks again to Stephen for joining us. And we're nearly at the end of the pod. All that remains is for you to get your next top five assignment. We've talked a good bit about Tyson Fury on this pod and on the last several podcasts. <laughs> I think we would agree he has separated himself as the best heavyweight of his era, the post-Klitschko era, pending someone proving otherwise. And many have said, with his size and skill and awkward style and resilience, that he'd be a handful for any heavyweight in history. Here's your assignment, Kieran. Count down the top five heavyweights from history who you'd give the best chance of beating Tyson Fury. Now, maybe there are 20 different all-time greats that you would favor to beat him. Maybe there are zero. Maybe you're one of those people who thinks Tyson Fury should be favored over any heavyweight ever. Either way, you need to come up with the five to whom you'd give the best chance of defeating him. So I don't get to come back and go, there's nobody on the list. And then that's the end of my challenge, right? (laughs) Right. Even if the highest chance you'd give anyone is a 2% chance of beating him, then that's who's number one on your list. That's a great challenge. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, I I think it will be. And you think a bit about styles and uh, certainly you'll be thinking a little bit about size because, uh, you know, I'm not sure, not not to spoil your list, but uh, Tyson Fury against Tommy Burns. Kind of hard to see how a (laughs) five foot seven hundred sixty five pounder pulls that off. Right. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. I'll enjoy doing that. So thank you for that one. All right. All right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, We will be back next week with a recap of Canelo Triple G3 and a preview of the following weekend's fights. And it's a busy weekend. It includes Shakur Stevenson taking on Robson Concesao, Lee Wood against Mauricio Lara, and Joseph Parker versus Joe Joyce. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. Mm-hmm.